0: big buck registries deer hunting podcast episode number 148 jim and eva shockey off camera humble beginnings outdoor riding, 88 death threats in 24 hours and the true meaning of hunting and conservation please support our sponsors as they make this show possible today's show is brought to you by morris's sporting goods
1: and the euro hanger
0: big buck registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories we preserve a piece of americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country and who knows maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level
2: hey everybody this is dr grant woods from growing deer tv you're listening to one of my favorite deer hunting podcasts on the internet the big buck registries big buck deer hunting podcast Hey, this is Dr. Carl Miller, and you're listening to my favorite hunting podcast on the internet, The Big Buck Registries Big Buck Podcast. This is Josh Carney, son of the South. You're listening to my number one
3: podcast on the internet, The Big Buck Registry Big Buck Podcast.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. My name is Jay. You know what, I'm I'm really psyched that you decided to tune in and and give us an hour of your ear by pushing that play button right there on your iPhone or iDevice. And you know what, if you like the show, if you would, go do a search for the Big Buck Registry in iTunes. And when you get there, if you wouldn't mind, we could use a couple of reviews. Write a review if you love the show, leave us a five star, and subscribe. Because I know my good friend Dusty is subscribed to the show. So if he can do it, you can do it too. What's happening, Dusty? By now, Jay, Saturday, it's going to be the second day
1: in the New Hampshire turkey woods. Yes. Yes, it is. and is. I'm headed, I'm headed to New Hampshire this week. We're going we're to hunt the thunder chickens. We're going to kill the thunder chickens. We're going to eat the thunder chickens. <laughs> and we're going to make some great life memories,
0: Jay. Yes, we are. That is, that is a fact, Jack.
1: Yeah, I, I can't wait to hang out with uh, yourself, Greg, Tom Staples, Mike Bierman. We're all coming up. The yeah. living room buck's going to be in New Hampshire. Yep. Thought we'd uh, swing
0: over and see uh, the gang over at Morris's Sporting Goods. For sure. See what Randy's up to. See what, see what Jim's what Tom, up
1: to. See what Tom's up to. Yep. Jim's up to. Everybody there at Morris's. see what's shaking. I'm sure we're going to be able to check out some turkeys being checked in. hmm Yep.
0: And uh, we're going to have an epic weekend. And you know what? What else is epic? That's happening is the show today. We sure, have a sure. There's, a, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, you know, they've they've appeared individually on other podcasts, but uh, unless something's happened recently, I don't think any. I don't think any podcast has had the likes of Jim and Eva Shockey on the same show at the same time. And we notice that they have this this really funny canter between the two of them when they get together. They constantly constantly pick on each other and here we are we were able to get them both onto our show at the same time jim and eva shockey joining us right here on the big buck registries deer hunting podcast can you believe that
1: it's it's going to be amazing you know it's going to be a show that uh that you're going to go back and, and listen back through i'm sure of it
0: it's it's a cool show because we kind of go through their entire life setup and we ask them some tough questions so yeah thinking, for sure you, you know, know so. and i, I, I think the, and they answered very honestly which I, I appreciated. You know, they didn't. Right. They didn't skirt the question. They went right for it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and it's one of the things where we we did get a little deeper than most uh, most have heard. And you know, it's uh, some stories that are coming from the heart. Uh, you know, with uh, obviously Eva's grandfather and Jim's father. We're going to get deep into the show, and that that's what we like to do, Jay. And, and you know, we, we're going to go the extra mile and and have yep. both of them on and
0: and mm-hmm. together and. And just kind of go with the flow and, and see where it leads us and, to. And I guarantee you that you're going to learn something about Jim and Eva that you've never heard before when you listen to this interview. I do have a shout-out I'd like to give this week, Dusty. We had a, somebody write in, a fellow by the name of Kyle Rosner. And Kyle wrote, he goes, hey, man, just wanted to let you know I love the show. You guys do a great job. It's like my bedtime story every night that I go to sleep. <laughs> LOL. So that's isn't that great? I mean, yeah, I,
1: that is that is great, you know? and. and we appreciate everybody that uh, sends us in a message or gets in touch with us at uh, either one of our emails, at yeah. com or at com, And shoot us an email and tell us what you think about the show, and, and uh, we appreciate that. Yeah, I thought that
0: was neat. And he said, says he has a good story to tell, and I'm going to give him a call and find out what that's all about. And who knows, maybe he'll appear with his great deer story right here. On the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by yeah. USA Trail Cams.
1: And uh, shoot it out to all the listeners. If, you, if you've if got somebody that's got a story that's just beyond and above the rest, get with us. You know, we'll talk to anybody and uh, get the details on that particular story and see if it's something that we think that uh, our listeners would enjoy and would like to hear and You just never know. You may be the next guest on the Big Buck Registry.
0: This is very true. We love a good deer story. So before we turn to Jim and Eva Shockey, let's turn to Jim Keller with the Deer News. The Deer News this week is sponsored by the
1: Eurohanger. You don't have to spend big bucks to hang your big buck. Get yourself a Eurohanger. Facebook.com forward slash Eurohanger,
4: E-U-R-O-H-A-N-G-E-R. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. In our first story, Scent Companies Joined the Fight Against CWD. This story was originally featured in Outdoor Life and was written by Craig Doherty. Many scientists in the deer disease community believe that prions found in urine based scents may spread chronic wasting disease, or CWD. However, there is no conclusive scientific research that indicates that scent products have anything to do with the transmitting of CWD. However, as a precaution, the Archery Trade Association, members of the scent industry, wildlife agencies, and CWD experts have developed a new quote unquote deer protection program designed to ensure that ATA member scent manufacturers do everything possible to prevent the spread of chronic wasting disease in wild deer, elk, and moose in the United States. The program encourages scent manufacturers and urine suppliers to develop self-imposed protective restrictions on their products and the deer-elk facilities that provide urine for those products. The restrictions are designed to ensure urine-based scent products don't contain the infectious prions that cause CWD. Scent manufacturers enrolled in the ATA program can display the ATA's quote-unquote seal of participation label and scent products that originate from facilities participating in the program. Mr. Doherty reports that many, if not most, of the scent manufacturers are participating in the program. For more details on the program, including the criteria these companies must follow, please check our show notes at BigBuckRegistry.com. Vermont deer herd expected to be largest since 2007. This story was reported by Lawrence Pine of the Burlington Free Press. Vermont wildlife biologists expect the statewide deer herd going into the fall will will number from 140 to 145,000 which is the highest since 2007 and the second highest since 2001. Biologists say the increased herd is a result of two factors. One, relatively few antlerless deer permits were issued last year, and the hunter success rate during the December muzzleloading hunt, when antlerless permits are valid, was lowest on record. And two, those deer fared extremely well during the past winter, which was the mildest since the state Fish and Wildlife Department began tracking daily snow depths and temperatures in 1970. In addition, overwinter deer survival was extremely good, biologists say, particularly among fawns born in the previous spring, which are especially vulnerable to the harsh winter weather. The Vermont Fish and Wildlife Board is proposing changes to antlerless permits being offered with the goal of reducing deer density in some management units while keeping it flat or increasing it in others. For, inform- for more information on these proposed changes, as well as dates for public hearings on them, please check our show notes or visit VT fishandwildlife.com. Researchers find new bacteria that transmits Lyme disease. This story was written by Alan Clemens of DeerAndDeerHunting.com. A second bacteria has been discovered that causes Lyme disease and is carried by the same deer tick. The new bacteria has different symptoms than the more common ones sustained by those infected the disease. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Mayo Clinic, and State Health Department officials from North Dakota, Wisconsin, and Minnesota announced the findings last February. They revealed that the bacteria Borealia may cause Lyme disease, which infects more than 200,000 Americans annually. The new bacteria causes symptoms such as nausea, fatigue, headache, and fever in the early stages. The new bacteria does not cause the quote-unquote bullseye rash around the bite area, but instead causes diffuse rashes. If treated early enough, those symptoms may disappear. If untreated, Lyme disease can cause serious problems to the nervous system, heart, and joints, including being life-threatening. This discovery adds another important piece of information to the complex picture of tick-borne disease in the United States, says CDC microbiologist Dr. Janine Peterson in a press release oklahoma legalizes suppressors for hunting on public land this story was originally reported by outdoorhub.com. oklahoma governor mary fallen signed into law house bill twenty six thirty seven which legalized suppressors for, pu- for hunting on public land hunting with suppressors on private land is already legal in the state and has been since 2012. Oklahoma now joins the rest of the nation allowing suppressors to be used for hunting. According to the American Silencer Association, only a handful of states still ban hunters from using the devices, including California, Hawaii, and New York. Hunters say suppressors, also known as silencers, reduce gunshots to hearing-safe levels and prevent hearing loss. Opponents however, worry that it could cause a safety concern or allow poachers to take animals without alerting those nearby. Supporters say these concerns have no basis in reality and that the benefit of such suppressors far outweigh the negatives. The NRA has also backed legislation to remove the ban on suppressor use, adding that evidence has shown that suppressors provide a healthier and more enjoyable shooting experience. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. If you have any ideas for future topics or have questions about any of these topics, Please email me at jimbigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News.
1: Thanks, Jim Keller, for the Deer News this week. And without further ado, here is Jim and Eva Shockey.
0: Jim and Eva Shockey, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How's it going?
3: Great. Great. Thanks, Thanks. For-
0: It's a pleasure to have you on. As most people do these days, we notice from Facebook and social media and see what you both are up to most of the time. I want to go deeper than Facebook today. I want to really kind of Get into some who you guys really are, offset, and you know behind the camera, so to speak. Uh-oh.
3: Sounds
2: good. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so you got no, uh,
0: oh sounds good.
3: All right. I like editing. Yeah, got to to worry think, yeah, I like editing my life a little bit on Facebook, so it looks like all the good things. I don't know if I want to answer any more questions. That was <laughs> really nice one. <laughs>
2: and, and as far as as far as any deeper with me past Facebook, no problem at all because uh, there's lots of depth there. Uh-huh. You a little worried? You a little worried, Eve?
3: Nope, not go. Go ahead, you guys. Go for
2: I'm ready. it. <laughs> yeah, bring it on, right.
0: Jim. I wanna, I wanted to ask you some questions about kind of how your career got started. I, I've, I've talked to some people that I think you worked with in the past, and it's kind of an interesting development from where you are today to from going back to where you started. How did it? This? How did you become the the person you are today in the hunting world? Where did that all start?
2: Well, I mean, I've always been a hunter from my first memories were hunting bugs, you know, uh, beetle bugs and earthworms. So I, you know, from two years on, I was a hunter. Uh, but, but on the professional side, that had its, I guess, a, a, its beginning. I remember Louise and I were just married. So this would be 84. And I, I can remember reading a, a magazine and, looking through it and and hunting magazine and not seeing any articles that I was interested in reading because it was a lot of how to, you know, to, to me hunting was something beyond just how to do it. I wanted to be entertained. I wanted to be taken on a trip like they, you know, like Ruark and and J a Hunter and, you know, even Hemingway to a degree, these great writers took us on adventures. They, they, it was something bigger than just how to kill your hamburger for dinner and I remember thinking there wasn't one in that magazine, and I would like to, you know, tell about one of my hunts where that was an adventure. And and so I sat down and wrote an article and uh, and uh, sent it off to a magazine called Bowbender Magazine, It's a Canadian publication, hmm. and it was accepted. Kathleen Windsor was the editor, and she paid me forty two dollars for my article. And I was that launched my professional hunting career. Wow! How
0: did you feel when you got the forty two bucks for something you wrote? <laughs> <laughs>
2: You know, I, I was pretty happy about it. I, I think I probably still have the check somewhere. I doubt that I ever cashed it. I, I was way, way more interested in in just seeing my name in lights, you know, seeing the magazine come out with uh, with my byline and then my article, you know, that was entertaining people. So, yeah, you know, it wasn't. It's never been about the money. It, it really hasn't. It's uh, right. money is a way to to go hunting more, but but it's not a. Even back then, it wasn't about the money. It was it was just about telling a story that I. Needed to be told about hunting.
0: Right, it is pretty cool when you can uh, get paid for the things that you like to talk about. Though I, I, I think you have to agree with me there.
2: <laughs> every every morning I wake up and go, "Thank you, thank you," thank and I you. promise to do my best. If someone has That's to do right. this job, I, you know, I will. I, I, I will do it. It's, uh, right. it's very been very very fortunate. Yeah,
0: I, I was talking to Gordon Whittington, and he tells me that you used to write a comedy column for North American Whitetail. Tell me about that story.
2: Yeah, that, that was, um, I mean, I, I, I like writing. It's, it's something that I think if I have any talent, maybe that's it. It's hard to judge myself and I'm not trying to brag, but, but humor is is something that I've been able to, to write. And I I wrote a, a column for Gordon that I was writing under the byline or under the, uh, the non-deplume of, of Ace Tadler was my <laughs> was my writing name. So yeah, I, I did for several years. Nice. Wrote for Gordon. I, I did a. I also wrote the back page column uh, for a nor, uh, North American Hunter magazine, and that, that was like six hundred thousand circulation, maybe in seven hundred thousand. That was a humor column as well. Um, I can't even remember what the. Uh, can't even remember the name of the darn column, but I did that for about ten years too. Yeah, I, I like writing humor.
0: Very cool, Eva. is Is your dad a funny guy? He thinks, he's really,
3: he thinks he's really funny. Um, <laughs> I would say he has a pretty good sense of humor. He, when you're talking about his columns, it's actually one of my favorite memories when I was younger. Where my bedroom was when I grew up, it was basically his humongous office led attached right onto my bedroom. So my bedroom door was right at the entrance of his office, and he would almost every morning I'd wake up back a long time ago, when I was quite small, and I'd hear him reading his articles to my mom out loud, like, to proof them, and she'd always tell him, like, oh, that's maybe a little too much, or that part, maybe you should cut that part out, and I remember I would sit there in bed and wake up to him reading, and I think that's, it's one of my favorite things, and I, I mean, I wish... I wish that he still wrote, especially his humor columns, because he somehow made himself sound really funny, and his humor columns were pretty incredible.
2: <laughs> that would be a backhanded compliment, i say. Thank you, Eva.
3: <laughs> I just can't quite give you a full compliment, but yes, his, his writing was good. I'll tell you that.
0: Oh, that's funny. Can you remember any of the articles from back then, Eva, that, that made you chuckle more than others?
3: Uh, yeah, because half of them were about me at my expense, and I didn't really have any say in them, because I mean, technically, they were feeding our family the money from them, so they would, he would write about, when I was a teenager, how we'd be at the SCI convention, this is Fire Club International, and there'd be, I'd be at the booth, and there'd be sort of young boys around hanging around trying to talk to me and he was relating the young boys like young bucks in the rut how they were all scraping and like (laughs) going against branches and stuff and he was making fun of me basically i think he talked about my first date and my first boyfriend in those articles it was pretty (laughs) humiliating actually thinking back on it
2: gotcha So she was a huge inspiration for many of the articles
0: so your entire core development age of your life was was put in public eye from day one.
3: Exactly. Before, <laughs> before the TV show even really existed. And I'll say also, one of the stories that I think is kind of funny, I don't think she thinks it's very funny, but my mom had the same situation with my dad using her as his muse. So he, my mom, I don't know if you know what she looks like, but she's... Yes. Like, beautiful and super healthy and in shape and, like, just a wonderful person. And my dad, as a joke, he made her sound kind of, like, really big and not... The, not what she's like at all. I don't really know, know how to describe it. But he said jokes like he used her underwear as the tarp for his boat, like stuff like that. And <laughs> then he was he was at the shows with her one time, and people were whispering, and there and there was a rumor saying that like who's Jim at the show with That's Not his wife, but it was my it was my mom. It's just because people thought my mom was really what it, what the articles made her sound like. Wow. So my mom had to clarify that actually is not me. That's not true. <laughs> so you guys you guys are lucky you didn't grow up with Jim writing about you. <laughs>
2: uh, i'm starting to feel bad except i'm also laughing so
0: uh, right you know, well you can't feel that bad about it
2: <laughs> yeah, no it's it funny it's fun i actually i i think i even remember talking about evie's first boyfriend it was uh i, I remember the carrot or me in the article came to tell louise yeah he's he goes to harvard he's got a 40 average he's from a, a moneyed family worth billions he's got, he's a duke of connaught or something. and and I said so. Basically, he's got no redeeming characteristics at all.
0: He's not good enough for either. So, <laughs> right. so, that's funny.
2: That's uh, it, again uh, backhanded compliment back to you. I was, uh, I was very protective
0: over. Gotcha. <laughs> Jim, did you grow up in Canada?
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Well, the first five years of my life, I, we lived in trailer parks all over Western Canada. Um, we finally got a house when I was five years old. So that, that uh, spent the rest until I was 17 there, 12 years, and then I went off to university in uh, Western Canada, out of Vancouver.
0: Gotcha. Uh, and at the university, I understand that you were a swimmer, a competitive swimmer.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was all-American swimmer for NAIA conference, so smaller colleges. Hmm. Um, we we were the only Canadian university that gave scholarships. Simon Fraser University so we weren't allowed to compete in those days I'm old enough where you know amateur was supposed to be amateur and no money so giving a scholarship was considered not amateur so we competed in the states uh and I, yeah I started my first university two, two years I was on scholarship for swimming and then I flipped over to water polo and and made it on the Canadian national water polo team and did that for six more years.
0: Wow all right so that's um the to me, water polo—I don't know how you do it. I mean, I, I can—I can float around in my pool with a beer, but that's—that's that's a whole different ballgame when you're talking about water polo.
2: <laughs> you know what? Most water polo players can do the same thing.
0: Too, yes, they so. can. Yes, and
2: I have to say that I, I may have done that a little bit in, in my past life too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a great it, water polo was a fantastic sport. I mean, I, I loved it. It was—you know—I'm six. Well, I would have been six three in those days. Now I'm back down to probably six two, but. You know, 100, 192 pounds was my playing weight, and I was the third smallest on our team, and we didn't have a big team. So, If you were, uh, dad, if
3: you were playing now, you'd be a lot heavier on the team.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny, Eva. That's pretty funny. <laughs> That's because I've worked on developing my muscles since then, so I've got a lot more gotcha. more muscles. That's why I'm a little bit heavier than uh-huh. – Let's just say I wouldn't fit into my wedding suit anymore.
0: So you'd be playing goalie now? Is that the <laughs> –
2: you know, actually, goalies had to be able to get out of the water really high to stop the. Oh, that's top, all right. So, oh, gotcha. I suspect I'd be playing uh, bench warmer.
0: Bench warmer today, got it. Eva, are unless you... they
2: needed, until they needed a uh, a hitman then
0: then of course I could still do that part. <laughs> all right, you, you can take him out. You take him out at the knees.
2: <laughs> that's what. That's about, Well, in the water, it'd probably be higher than that, a little bit higher.
0: Right. Eva, did
1: did you follow up with uh, with your dad with any kind of water sports when you was in school?
3: Um, I think I actually went the opposite of water sports because when I was little he wanted me to do the water sports and so there was a lot of forced swim lessons from father to daughter and I did not like it very much so I went the route I played tennis and I danced and I played competitive field hockey for up until I went to college. I kind of wish I would have listened a little better because I'm actually really not a very good swimmer. <laughs> it's something I think I should have practiced a little bit more than I did. We were—we
2: were just trying to keep her from drowning. We—we we knew there was absolutely not a hope of her actually excelling at a sport like a tough sport like swimming.
1: Brutal, brutal. <laughs> just pure pure, brutal
2: yeah. <laughs> hey, um, Evie, no re- no retort on that one. Evie,
3: what's going on? No, I'm not even. I just kind of have to ignore you at some point.
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> But was uh, was growing up in Canada, like, uh, was that a, t- a tough place to grow up? Um, do you consider yourself to be, I mean, you're a big guy, you're a physical guy, you're a hunter. Is, did, did that whole persona come from living in Canada in the, the northern parts of, of the world, or is that just doesn't matter?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's big guys all over the place, and, and there's tough guys. My goodness sakes, you go up to Alaska and you want to see tough guys, uh, right. you know, Yukon, uh, but, but again, down, down, uh, south, there, there's some southern boys that, you know, they're, they're as tough as they come. So it's, I don't know that it's, it's geographic oriented. I think it's just your, your desire to do something that's with physicality involved. So, you know, I, I love physical work and I love climbing hills. I'm not afraid of, of working 24 seven literally for years on end. So, you know, I, I think that's more, you know it's, and I don't know if that's innate or, or whether it's uh, nurtured. You know if it comes from your parents. My my mom grew up uh, as a you know I mean didn't have shoes and they grew up in the dirty thirties or she was born in thirty one in Alberta with no money from Ukrainian immigrant parents. So you know she was tough and that, and I think that she probably instilled that into me to a certain degree because it's you know she you know wanted her her children to be to be tougher stronger you know because because of the hardship she had to deal with now of course you know like our children are so spoiled. we don't we, they don't need to be tough they <laughs> I get do, silver spoon I
3: something was coming. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> i said basically said evil out there but uh, you know i, I it's no I, I don't know i i think it's there's there's some nature you know it's innate and 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 um, you know then, then it's then it's nurturing your, you know what your parents Instilled in you for values, you know whether it's hard work or whether they gave you everything. You know, I, I had to. I sh- certainly wasn't given everything, um, but I knew my parents were always there backing me, so that gave me, you know, confidence and to try things and know that if I did fail, they, you know, they would catch me. So, you know, and I don't mean financially because I couldn't do that. We didn't have any money, but uh, just there for support. So, you know, I think a lot of it comes from family. How, you know how you where you end up, and then of course it's right place, right time. You know, with the right skill set. So it's, you know, there's no, it takes, it takes a combination of all that to, to end up at a certain place in your life.
0: Gotcha. Eva, how do you feel about that? Do you think that you, you, have it an easier path than your dad did?
3: I'd say that I obviously am very aware that he is a pretty significant figure in the hunting industry. I will say he wasn't when I was growing up. I mean, he didn't start where he is now. He worked really, really very, very hard and a lot of hours and days and months and years to get to where he is. And I think a big part of what I'm like and my work ethic and work habits are based on the fact that I saw how hard he was working. And I know that Sometimes people do see him now and say oh when everything's like when you have a guide or when whatever and they say a some some sort of comment about he doesn't deserve to be doing what he's doing and like he should work harder and I I just wish they could see the hours that he put in and I think that was just such a good example him and my mom both um she was she stayed home with us which she gave up a career to do that which is also an incredible thing to learn from and I mean they had I had more of a step up than he did a hundred percent, but they had us, I mean, we had summer jobs. We had, I had jobs through university. We, we did know how to work and we, my brother and I still do know how to work at our age now, even though we, we did have a lot of support. And to this day, we still have a lot of support doing what we're doing.
0: Jim, how did you meet Louise? <laughs>
3: That's
2: uh, who, who, who handed you these questions? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, you, you know, here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. It was 1984. And I was, um, I was sitting there one night by myself, no girlfriend, and thinking, where would, where would, you know, a guy find pretty girls that, you know, have nice bodies that are athletic and, and talented and, and, you know, the, the bars that I've been hanging out at didn't see any there, so. I, I thought to myself, well, dance class, there's gotta be girls like that at, at taking sure. dance lessons.
0: So it's a great answer. So I, uh,
2: yeah. So I looked in the yellow pages, found the one dance studio in Vancouver, British Columbia that had, you know, the full page was a, was an advertisement on a dancer. So, well, it's gotta be the biggest so it's probably the best. And I phoned them and what do you got tonight at five o'clock? And they said, well, we have a class, um, advanced ballet jazz being taught by Louise. And I said, ah, that sounds great. So I, uh, dressed up in my shorty shorts and in those days and a uh, little muscle shirt and showed up at that dance class. So there was 30 <laughs> beautiful women there, one gay guy, uh, me, and then Louise was teaching it and that uh, we were married six months later.
0: I don't suppose you have any photos from that event. <laughs>
2: Ooh, uh, they're so made, they're, <laughs>
0: Eva's thinking hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: if if there was, I'm sure if Eva knew where they were, she would find them and they'd be posted on Facebook for millions of people to, to oh, laugh at. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's a mission fantastic. for you, Eva.
3: Yeah, well, he actually, there's a lot of things I get to work with because he was also somewhere along the same timeline, way before me. He was an underwear model, and for some creepy reason, <laughs> we still have those photos floating around the house. So there's been a few times that those have gotten posted, or at least <laughs> him and his mankini or whatever he used to wear when he played water
0: <laughs> Is that right? Oh, very interesting. Okay. Hey, excuse uh, me. They,
2: $75 an hour is an underwear model. It was uh, better money than sure. doing runway stuff, so why not? And I just looked at it as advertising. Right. I know that's probably too crude for, for this podcast, but there you go, I already said it. You can, you, you can edit, edit it out if you want.
0: No, that's staying in. Absolutely. So oh, that's good. That's really good stuff. So Eva, how, how did you meet your husband? And your, your husband is Tim, correct?
3: Tim, yeah. So my husband is a professional hockey player, and we met about, I guess, four years ago. And I was doing a show circuit, so going to all the trade shows. And at the time, I was selling T-shirts, like hunting T-shirts and talking to people about hunting. And I was on the road for about three months, and one of my stops was in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's called the Dixie Deer Classic. And he, at the time, was playing for the Hurricanes, which is the NHL team out of Raleigh. And he's a hunter and fisherman, so he came to the show. And we just talked for a couple minutes, and he told his friend that night that he was going to marry me, which I was not aware of. And about a year later, we started dating, and a year later got engaged, and a year later got married. So now that's where we are. Oh, wow. No yeah. kidding.
0: So, Jim, how, how do you feel about letting Eva find a, a man? Being as protective as you are of your daughter.
2: <laughs> well, I, I started being—I was protective only until she was fourteen, and then when aliens possessed her, I said, "Okay, how are we going to find somebody for her?" So <laughs> I, I, when, when 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 Tim showed up, I mean, and Eva can cooperate. Cooperate this. I uh, I uh, warned them. <laughs> How many times, Eva? Like, pretty much every single time I saw him, I said, You know what you're getting into. So, so, uh, no, I'm, I'm.
3: It was really mean.
2: (laughs) Mean to Eva, but Tim kind of thinks it's funny because now he understands what I'm talking about. But, uh, he, Tim is a, Tim's a man's man. You know, there's, your job as a parent is to make sure your children get to whatever age they need to get to, and then you hand them off to, to a spouse that hopefully looks after them and that they're in love with and their soulmate for the rest of their life. And, and, you know, and the whole cycle continues And that. I could not have gone out and picked a better man than, than Tim. Uh, Honestly, uh, you know, he, he's just, he's a great guy. And, uh, I so both Louisiana and I are so happy for both of them. So, yeah, it was, it was easy (laughs) that, that decision all joking aside tim tim is a is a great great guy and i totally
0: respect him so there wasn't this this uh situation where you had to have tim over be cleaning the guns and your underwear and your hat saying hey you know (laughs) good luck
2: (laughs) well I, i don't know if tim's listening to this but there certainly there certainly was other gentlemen over the years prior to Tim where uh, I've been happy to do a lot more. I ne- I, of course, evil was smart enough never to bring him to my home. That would be like into my lair. Gotcha. I and I would really have taken care of him. him but uh, actually
3: not listening right now. Thanks, Dad. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, he be, he, is he listening?
3: No, he's not. He actually I, he, the door was open and I started talking and he came and slid the door closed. so clearly <laughs> which I'm okay, glad.
2: but he'll, so he'll hear the, He'll hear the podcast. So, uh, right. hey, Tim, I think you're a great guy and uh the other guys were losers.
0: <laughs> so, Eva, is that how I went down?
3: Um, well, kind of. I mean, he really was. I mean, not not about the other guys, but he was really protective growing up and kind of all the men in my family were. My uncle lived up the road with two German shepherds who was a hunter and then we had a guy that lived just up past further past his house and he had two sheep dogs, like attack dogs and then my dad was down at the bottom of the road. He had to come all the way past all these houses with the guard dogs to get to my house. So it was just never a situation that was worth bringing anyone else home to. (laughs) So when Tim came home, it really was um, someone that my dad had huge respect for. It actually got to the point when Tim asked um, for his permission to propose to me, my dad knew it was coming. And he, he kind of told my mom, he was going to be tough on him and kind of give him a speech. Tim asked him and my dad started crying. So it never hurt me. is how it happened.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, here's the thing. Deny, deny, deny. So there's Evie's word against my word.
1: Oh, so, so Eva, you're saying Jim got uh, soft and teary eyed on you.
3: Exactly, and then okay. so he's he's kind of all talk until it really came down to it, and I'm obviously I agree that I made a great choice. And Tim is, I had to just wait till someone was tougher than my dad, and that's who I decided to marry.
0: <laughs> that's great. That's great story. So Jim, let's talk about your dad a little bit. I I would assume he was an influence in your life growing up and teaching you how to hunt. Tell me about your dad.
2: You know, he, dad. Dad was salt of the earth. He, he was a road construction superintendent. When he retired at 66, and, and had worked his way all the way up from labor back in the you know 1940s, uh, just after World War II, worked for the same company his entire life. The most devoted, uh, honorable, honest. I mean, every every good every every good thing you can say about somebody that, that was my dad, and and uh, he he loved hunting, but. You know, growing up in the 30s, they didn't have anything, and and so hunting for him was was about getting meat. And even though he understood the the other part of hunting, the spiritual side, they didn't have the luxury of of being able to afford the time to go enjoy hunting for that reason. So he, I, but he knew it. He knew it was there. It was in his heart and in his soul. But he, you know, they, for them, it was if they could go hunting on whitetail opening day, get a deer and be back at work by noon season over that was a great hunting season right you know yet yet i know that he would have loved for it to be longer he just couldn't you know his upbringing just wouldn't allow them to enjoy life like that and enjoy the outdoors you, you had to work you had to get back to work it had to be about getting meat and nothing more so yeah th- dad taught me how to hunt but it wasn't until after he retired that the day he retired i mean people said he was so devoted to his job that he would never live past, you know, two or three years after retirement. And the day he retired, I, you know, basically hired him, uh, you know, for not a lot of money, like zero, but uh, come out and work in our bear camp and our opening territories. And and he did that uh, literally until he couldn't move around anymore. Um And for another 20, 20 plus years and, and, uh, and loved every second of it. Uh, you know, at that point in his life, he could start to, you know, look around and say, well, he had grandchildren. He was a success and had lived honorably his whole life, and now he could enjoy the hunts, which he did. We, we went to Africa with him, to Australia, New Caledonia, the Yukon. He, he's hunted everything and everywhere that he wanted to. So it was, uh, it was something I could do, give back to him. Gotcha. That's, uh,
0: he sounds like quite a guy from very basic upbringing to... Uh, getting to enjoy the outdoors probably more than he did when he was younger and for a different aspect of it uh, compared to what he was doing it for when he was just hunting for meat.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this this gave him the opportunity. uh, For for us, a lot of us nowadays, it is about the meat for sure because that's what we we live on. Uh, And and when I grew up, if we didn't get our moose every year, we didn't eat meat in the winter. We didn't go buy a cow. So that's part of it still, but you know, we want our hunting seasons to last longer. We want them You know, in a perfect world. It would last until the last minute of the last day and of the season. We got to hunt every single day. And that's, you know, dad got to that point where he started understanding. Not, not he always understood, but he, he just didn't have the luxury of embracing it. You know, that yeah. to listen to the coyotes in the morning and, and feel the, the fresh, you know, air and, and the frost and, and the beauty as the sun rises and, and a deer comes by and you let it live. And, and, you know, so you can continue to hunt, and that animal can continue to live and propagate and wait for an older one that's beyond breeding age. I mean these are all things that that he started to understand or started to embrace later on in his life and mm. he still played the part of uh i mean because it's still him, the meat you know he 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 didn't care about the antler size you know that that part he didn't he he never did care about that no matter what it was, yeah. unless of course it was bigger than one that i got and and then he would just do it for <laughs> the sake of doing it but uh, but uh you know he he it was still about meat, but it was more about the family and the and extending the experience of being in the outdoors and hunting okay. by, by the end of his his hunting
0: life okay. did you learn anything hunting technique wise from your dad?
2: oh absolutely i mean he he 's the one that taught me how to shoot he He, he was and i i won 't say this out in public, but him eva and and our son bramlin are the best shots with a rifle that i 've ever ever, ever met in my life. And I've met a lot of really good shots. And I'm talking about, you know, hunting shots. Um, so dad was an exceptionally good shot and he, he taught me the basics, uh, uh, you know, so, so right from the beginning safety, I mean, the, the fundamentals of hunting, he taught me, um, you know, and, and I, I can still to this day remember him, how disgusted he was when someone hit a deer on a hunting group that we were on and hit it too far back and and he just thought that was atrocious how can anybody do that and, and to this day I am paranoid about shooting too far back on a deer you know I, it's got to be in the boiler room as he always said and right. yeah he 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 taught me all that now now you know the, the style of hunting in those days it was about meat so you know pushing bushes what we called it they'd get together all my uncles and dad and they'd try and push the deer out of a bush to somebody right. running you know running boom 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 and and you know that was a style of hunting, but it didn't. You know, it wouldn't. You know, the skill was in the shooting. It wasn't necessarily in figuring a deer out and hunting it till you got it. So those skills, that was something that um, there was another fellow that taught me a lot of those was Pete Manziuk. He's passed away now, but uh, old Pete used to hunt jumpers, and he was he taught me the the uh, the the really uh, more important skills of hunting. And a cousin of mine, Ronnie Colburn. Excellent hunter who lived and died hunting, uh, same age as me. He, he, you know, him and I both grew up hunting and, and he was a better white tail hunter than, than I'll ever be he still is. And he taught me a lot of the skills too. Hmm. So it was peers growing up learning it as we went along. Gotcha.
0: Eva, what, t- and this might be hard to answer with your dad listening, but what types of skills did your dad teach you about whitetail hunting or just hunting in general that you, you still have like deep, deeply embedded in your soul today?
3: You guys keep asking me questions that I have to compliment him. I feel like he's paying you for these questions. Yeah. Like, so I have to keep giving him all these nice comments. I, I don't mind doing it, but not when he's on the phone too.
1: Eva, yeah. <laughs> what's some of the bad stuff your dad taught you that you had to yeah. throw out of
0: your head?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I could go on and on about bad habits.
0: Bad um, habits. Right. I'd like to hear some of the bad habits as well. That would be interesting.
2: Well, her, I can, her dad does like junk food Twizzlers, so – I may have passed that particular one on, yes.
3: Yeah, he's a bit of a sugar freak, which has not helped when we're sitting in long truck rides together. I guess a lot, I mean, obviously he taught me basically everything I know up until this point about hunting. I, I hunted with him exclusively until probably three, four years ago when I started going off with other people and with guides or with friends or filming the show by myself without him. Um, but up until that point, I I really relied on him for everything that I knew. And it was amazing when I started I was in a hunting family. I grew up with hunting, but I didn't hunt until I was 20. And I remember starting at 20 thinking, oh, I'll know a lot about this because I heard my dad talk about it. And when I got out there, it's amazing how much you take for granted that it's not common sense to the average person. And even someone growing up in the hunting family, it's not naturally in your brain how this stuff works. You really have to learn from someone and be mentored, I think, from either someone or read about it enough that you understand it. One of the things that I have or I really appreciate, I guess, that he taught me would be the respect for the animals, which these animals give their life so that you can eat them, put them in your freezer, share them with your friends and family, and appreciate that meat for the rest of the year or the rest of the however long it lasts. And that's something that means a lot to me. And that's really why I started hunting in the first place, because I thought it was so important in my life to be eating organic, free-range, wild game instead of whatever... I could buy without knowing where it was coming from. And so that was that was a really big thing, which is a big part of our family. I know, mean, I only had dad – didn't we only have moose and caribou and deer growing up, basically? I don't remember ever buying steak or having anything from yeah. the supermarket in yeah. our house. Yeah.
2: Never, never bought meat. That's awesome.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, which is a great way to grow up, and it really makes you appreciate the meat when you're sitting there – just for dinner tonight, we had elk, and my husband and I, and we sat there, and you can appreciate it and think about, oh, this elk was from Utah when I was out there last year on a hunt, and I thought about it and thought about the animal and its life, and that just means a lot when you can do that just because you're sitting at dinner almost a year later. Right.
0: Yeah, it seems like you have more respect for the animal when you actually were the one that shot it and harvested it and brought it back to be butchered or you butchered it yourself and you're actually uh, feasting on that that game. There's something way more rewarding than just going to the supermarket. I know we've talked about this over and over, but that's... Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you buy a pound of hamburger from the supermarket... You don't even know what it, how many animals it came from. It could come from ten different animals. Right. You don't know if they're healthy or you know. You know nothing about them. So, so I mean, to me, that's you know, this this body of ours. We only get one life and we get one body, and it really should be your temple as you as you're using it over your lifetime. And and who would want to put things in their body they don't even know where it comes from. Right. So, I, to me, it it just there's nothing more organic, more pure, more natural than. Than hunting your own animal and eating it. Right. I mean, it's it's been going on for a long, long time, and you know, just because people are urbanized nowadays doesn't mean that it's wrong. Maybe for them it is, but uh, you know, great. I don't stop them from eating their hamburger. Go ahead. Right. But uh,
3: I, think, I, I think there's also a big difference between obviously what we do as hunters, we believe is the best option. But there's a big difference between industrial farming and people going to the grocery store and buying that kind of meat versus the sustainable ranching and things, because I want to make sure that people don't think we're bashing that because I think that's also a great thing when you have, when you have a sustainable type of farm with the animals having good lives and you're not pumped full of stuff. That's not a lot different than hunting really, except it's a cow instead of a deer or a cow instead of a moose. But those that type of meat you really have to go out of your way to try to find at a very specific supermarket. Whereas what we do is we go do it ourselves and we're just closing the gap between the disconnect of where your food comes from and what you're eating at your dinner table.
0: So the exception of- are snicker bars and Twizzlers. Is that,
3: is that right, John? <laughs> any any sinker <laughs> <Well, shaker> bars <laughs> I think for him.
2: It, it, well, Twizzlers, Jube Jube's, and wine gums and nibs and, uh, and then uh, potato chips, but only wow. flavored ones. Ketchup, particularly. So, so that, that's <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> yeah. Not not so much not so much Snickers. Yeah,
0: I I one of my favorite times, and, and this doesn't happen a lot, but Jim, when you go to your freezer, and I think it's in your garage. I'm not quite sure. I think it's a big white freezer. I, oh. I've seen it on Facebook. When you open it up, I love it when there's just a whole bunch of you know wrapped meat in there that you know, did not come from a supermarket. I just, there's something like very, very rewarding to say, yeah, hey, uh, he gets it. I understand that.
2: Yeah. You, you know, you're only seeing one of the freezers. And actually, uh, how many do we have? Eva? I think there's seven. Oh, so,
3: and so. they're, they all have signs on them saying, do not touch Eva. Keep away, <laughs> Eva. Jim <and> Louise.
2: Louis. <laughs> I was getting ready yeah, to ask the question. Yeah. We, uh, we also grow a lot of our own vegetables and, and, uh, Fruit and whatnot, do nice. preserves. And Louisiana and I just made a, about thirty jars of Concord jelly the other day mm. from our own Concord grapes. So, so you know, there, there's more to just hunting as a as a lifestyle that goes beyond um, just killing an animal. You know, for meat, for red meat. There's there's a whole bunch more to it, and it's it's a natural, organic lifestyle.
0: I. I assume that there were more freezers somewhere in the vicinity of that one. I just uh, I assume that one was just just the one that you happened to open that day. So, but no, I agree. Yeah. with you. I think that's a hundred percent. Yeah,
2: there, actually, there's one more freezer that's or well, two more that are dedicated just to hides and and mounted animals that aren't mounted yet. They're still in the freezer. So, uh, that's uh, I haven't quite figured out where the dollars are going to come from to get those all mounted someday. But uh, they're there waiting to be mounted. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All right, so this is a question I've been meaning to ask, and and you're in the you're in high profile zone, both of you uh, on TV. You have television shows, and everything about that's in your life evolves around hunting. There's this other group out there, and and me included, uh, and I'm not in the other group. I'm in your group, where we get right down to like death threats uh, from anti-hunting groups. I'm curious how you handle somebody. When you actually meet them, because I have never actually met one. Really, they're all these keyboard uh, fanatics that seem very tough behind the keyboard, but they, I've never seen them out in public. How do you, have you ever bumped into them, and what do you say to them when something like that happens?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I can't. You know, I can't speak for Evie, but uh, for me, I, you know, I've been doing this now for well, as a professional, for thirty-one years, and I've never had anybody ever come up to me in person to my face and and say something derogatory about hunting or about me or about my lifestyle or uh, to utter a death threat. Uh, You know, they're there. I I see them protesting, you know, you know, five or six of them or 10 of them, uh, you know, loud vocal people, but, you know, at, at, uh, at conventions, you know, hunting conventions, but, I mean, compared to the thirty thousand people attending, who, they're, they're nothing. Right. they're I mean, they're 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 a loud and you know influential group for sure. But but there's not enough of them. There's not enough of them to to make up anywhere near a majority. They're they're maybe ten percent of the people and uh, of the general population. And and of that, there's probably one percent of that ten percent that are even you know that are that adamant about it that they would come right up to you and say something. So I haven't, I haven't seen them. I I've certainly suffered the death threats. I, I thought I had the world's record on death threats, at, you know, online death threats at 88 in in 24 hours. But oh,
0: wow. um, okay.
2: I, I think, I think Evie's eclipsed me on that one uh, over
3: it's the not, years. It's, I think it's a lot easier for people to send death threats and comments of that nature with social media now, because I know that his 88 record was, from his website, which actually made people have to go to his website, go into the comment section and post something. Whereas with with Facebook and Instagram, it's so immediate. People can do it a lot quicker. So I've definitely had a lot more than 88. And I agree with what he's saying. I mean, obviously, I have not been around the industry for 31 years, but... The only the closest thing I've ever had to someone in person is the picket lines at SCI or one of the hunting conventions, and I was driving by one this this year actually a few months ago, and I remember looking and they have all these anti-hunting posters up. There's maybe ten people tops. They're wearing unless they're all wearing fake ones. They're all wearing or a bunch of them were wearing leather shoes or leather belts, and we're looking at things going like, do you guys realize what you're wearing on your body that is no different than hunting but less ethical, I would say. And then on top of that, the news is kind of all smoke and mirrors because I went and turned on the news and they actually had coverage about this picket, this group of picketers and it made it look like there was 50 of them or 300 of them, but really there was maybe eight to 10 of them. And then just from the angles, it made, made their voices a lot louder than what they really were. And no one really cared at the time, but I'm sure on the news, it made it look like a bigger deal than it really was.
4: Gotcha.
0: The media has a, has a knack for that. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: their their job is to sell subscriptions, to sell viewership, and and get ratings, and and you know it, it doesn't it will will not serve that purpose if they tell the world, oh, there's only eight loudmouths here, and and most of them are dysfunctional, so you know that's not news, but if they can make it look like there's zillions of people, and and I mean, let's face it, most people are are intelligent, sentient human beings, and they're you know, they're not going to fall for that stuff. Once you once you explain to them the conservation angle of it, of hunting, uh, you know, absolutely they're on our side. Poaching is a different thing, you know, they, and that's where I think we get painted with the the wrong brush a lot of times is people think poaching and hunting is the same thing. They're, they're not. They're not. It's like calling a bank robber the same thing as somebody who makes a withdrawal of their account at the bank. Right. The same thing. They're not. One's a criminal, one's not. You know, so it's... Uh, It's, but but most people, the vast majority of people are very open-minded about, about hunting as long as they, as long as you can explain to them and educate them on the uh, conservation aspects of it.
0: Yes, I I agree. And I've never had anybody come up to me and I'm glad you said that because I was curious, somebody being in the industry for 30 years, have you ever actually had a physical encounter and my guess is that you wouldn't ever have that, but the, you always kind of you're always curious. After all the the keyboard people get on and they start bashing your site and and, and privately tell you that you know they want to stick you in the back of their pickup and drag you around town with your tongue hanging, yeah. out, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, you, you know the 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 biggest what they're trying to do is marginalize us and and alienate us with with the rest of the public and and in some way cause us to to feel bad about what we do and who we are. And, and if you care about what other people think, if you don't have the confidence to say, no, I'm right. I know I'm right. So you can say what you want, you know, slings and arrows hurt me, but, but words don't hurt me. Right. And, and I know absolutely 100% to the deepest part of my, my heart that, that hunting is going to be in this next, certainly two generations the only thing that's going to save the wildlife around this world and in so many parts of the world. So when someone comes over to me and, and says, you know, or, or hammers me on Facebook, you know, saying that's horrible, you know, the disgusting things they say, you know, I still know I'm right. And I don't really care what they think about me. And, and no one, no hunter should ever, ever apologize. Eva says it never apologize for being a hunter and nor right. should they. Right. So it, as long as you have the confidence to know you are right and, and, and don't care what people think. Yeah, I don't care. You, you, I don't care if every single person in a hundred miles of me doesn't like me because I hunt. It doesn't matter because I know I'm right, and it's the only thing that's going to protect the wildlife going forward in this earth. Right. So, you know, how how can you care what people say about you? But it, you know, not everybody has that confidence in in their beliefs.
0: Yeah. yeah, I bumped into a friend from college the other day, and she. I got to explain that I have this show, this podcast that we're doing today and that this led me to to meet some very, very interesting people across the world and has given me opportunities that I never thought I'd have in life. And the first thing that, that she said when she, she heard that it was about deer hunting, she said, well, you don't trophy hunt, do you? And no. it was my opportunity to actually change her viewpoint. And I actually think I did by the end of the conversation by saying – I, you know i I don't tend to trophy hunt because I do like to put meat in the freezer, but I would and I have, and I will continue to do that, and I will also support anybody that wants to because ultimately that's your biggest conservation effort right there because if you don't put a a good price on the trophy hunt, then there will be no conservation whatsoever
2: you're you're a hundred percent right and and most people like i say they they're open to learning it's just they they've been fed you know the Cecil the lion. Line of shtick for so long that they they just they just regurgitate it. But as soon as you actually bring out the facts, and most people, a you know, are ignorant of the facts, so they they have no basis other than to say, well, it's bad. Well, no, it's not. Here's the reason why, and they have no counter to it. Yeah. Um, so so then they they'll swing to your side because you know, we're just human beings, and we're only as smart as what we learned you know to this point in our lives. So. It's it's every hunter's responsibility, just like you did for that lady um, from college, is to uh, educate as many people as we can, and and do it, do it not from a uh, a point of view of they're stupid and we're smart, but right. more from you know if we don't educate the rest of the world, these animals are going to be gone. They're going to be gone, and and so then it becomes a lot more. You know, it's not a fight. It's it's, it's pure education, right. pure enlightenment.
0: And that's the way I felt when I left the conversation. Like a light bulb went off on her in her head. I'm like that's a successful ex- explanation. I felt great. Finally, yep. you know, I had had a aha moment that I can. This is how I'm going to explain it from now on.
2: Yep, perfect. That's one tiny battle that that we've won, and and on behalf of wildlife. Yeah. And it's not even on behalf of hunting. It's it's hunting benefits, yes, but it's the wildlife that ultimately benefited from your. One little battle. Now, if every hunter out there, the you know tens of millions of us, did that same thing every day to somebody, and that, it wouldn't take long before the world would you know understand. Right.
3: Exactly. I think a lot of them as well. When obviously conservation is the number one thing about hunting, but a lot of them, when you break it down, just saying, well, if you eat meat, I mean, do you know where your meat comes from? And when you actually explain it to them, or or let them taste up some of the wild game that you've cooked, like I've had girlfriends over that one of them was a I guess it's called a pescatarian. Like she would only eat fish because she didn't want to eat any meat because she didn't like the farming. And I, she came to my house and I made elk and I knew she was a pescatarian and I made it anyways. And I was like, I'm really sorry. There's other stuff you can eat if you don't eat it. And she's like, no, I'll try it. And she ate it and she loved it. And she said, she's never thought about that. She's never considered, it's not meat she doesn't like. It's the fact she doesn't know where it comes from. But the fact that I was serving her something, I knew exactly where it came from. I knew, I knew where... I hunted it and knew the whole process from the field into my freezer onto the table, and it was just an incredible thing for to see someone like that that hadn't eaten meat in ten years totally changed her whole attitude about it.
0: it, it that's cool. That was one of those moments. You just like I, feel, I just feel good about being a hunter because I know I changed her perspective, and exactly. yep. yeah, it's yep. just yep. awesome feeling. Uh, are, are you guys involved with any conservation groups?
2: Uh, well, I mean, SCI is. Uh, I've been touting their you know graces for the last well 15 years on our hunting adventure show i think it's a great organization it's the strongest international hunting organization uh you know they they're heavy heavy into lobbying um, you know they're just they're just a good organization dallas safari club as well we've been involved with boy I, I, FNAZ, which foundation for north american wild sheep which i think is now the the wild sheep federation something like that they've changed uh grand slam Ovis or so many not not so much on the turkey side or ducks unlimited because again it's it's birds but but we support them at at arm's length for sure speak at as many of the events as we possibly can it's uh you know there it's every hunter should be a member of at least one of those organizations and and hopefully more than that right
1: yeah it only makes sense to uh participate in your conservation in your area and, and worldwide actually
2: yeah but you know it doesn't have to be that it can be local like you say just support your local ducks unlimited chapter that that's that's worth doing, or your local SCI chapter, uh, you, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Federation or Foundation. All those, they're all great and all important to be part of. Bieleder Foundation. Yeah, Every just, hunter should should be involved with them and yours.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to break it down, the SCI is the Safari Club International. Is that correct, Jim? Uh,
2: Safari Club International. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, just maybe if there's a listener who didn't understand some, you know, briefing of that, just so they know.
2: Yeah, yeah. We I forget SCI. We. You know, I, I live with it every day, so I, you know, and BNC, Boone and Crockett Club, Pope and Young Club, uh, Long Hunter Society, they're all all really important organizations for hunters to belong to.
1: Right, for sure, yeah, and just, uh, you know, and it, it just boils down to a membership and some phone calls, and I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of uh, voluntary participation that you can get involved with.
2: Yep, it is, and, and even, you know, even if it's just your your sort of vote of acceptance of, of these organizations that gives a power. I mean, you've got sixty thousand numbers, That's a, one, that speaks as one single voice when a when an issue comes up, and and you know it, it's important. And even if it's three thousand members, you know what's what's louder: three thousand people yelling out about something that's un, unjust or unjust for wildlife, or just yourself yelling. You know, it, it's very important to be part of these organizations if you're a hunter.
3: It's also, I think, a really good thing. People ask us a lot. It really you leave inspired because you learn so much about hunting and conservation, you are around other people that share the passion and I know that when I leave, I leave inspired and I know people, especially if they, they're they not really familiar with it, I dare anyone to go that doesn't really understand hunting and tell them when they leave, I know that they'll have their attitude changed and their mind will be a lot more positive towards it.
2: There's local fish and game clubs as well, like the British Columbia has their uh, Wildlife Federation in Saskatchewan, Alberta I mean, and, and always there's a little local organization that uh, you can meet up with other people that are that are hunters and they'll be happy happy to to invite you in and, and teach you you know to to be able to hunt to appreciate the hunting and and you know where to go to, to hunt to skill learn the skills so yeah, yeah that, I
1: mean, that's that, that's probably one of the coolest and, and, and most awesomest thing about being a hunter is that uh, you know when you get a group of people together and, and and say somebody's there that's you know going on maybe their first hunt in a few months and And it's a great thing when there's a group conversation, Uh, say us four was all standing somewhere and somebody's talking to us and, and the education that we're all willing, like every hunter that you talk to is willing to share some experience or a scenario or a situation that they've been into that. That's, I think that's what I love. And I know that you guys love about the, the whole hunting family is that we all can, can get along and relate to each other and, and kind of have the same envisions out in the woods and everything
3: and we're just excited to have more hunters join in i think that's a great thing for new hunters that are maybe a little bit intimidated about it or they're not sure how they'll be accepted because i've never met any hunter in my life that wasn't excited when they heard someone started hunting for the first time and yeah maybe they don't know everything about it they don't have the same knowledge as a hunter that's a little more seasoned but that's really not the part that matters, the part that you want to get out there, that you love wildlife. You're enjoying the same passion that we've all realized how much we love over the years.
1: What, what would you say, Eva, to, a, to a, a person that's just getting into hunting and say they stopped and, and said, Eva, can you tell me anything that would, would push my way towards hunting a little better, understanding?" What would you say to somebody that's that's never hunted and they're looking to get into it?
3: I would say, like we just discussed, go try to find a local, whether it's a chapter or a group or an outdoor program of some sort, go to the gun range or a local archery class, somewhere where people that already are familiar with hunting in the outdoors are will be there. I mean, if you have a family member, that's obviously the easiest one or a close friend. But if you don't have that, go somewhere where people with the same passion and the same like-minded ideas about hunting can teach you and you can learn from them. And the biggest thing for me, because I mean, I didn't start relatively that long ago, is just ask questions. You don't have to be a professional. You can laugh at yourself and realize you don't know a lot about it. And that's not going to make people think you're stupid or think you shouldn't be a hunter. It's going to make them, first of all, probably proud that they can answer the questions and look like they know what they're talking about. And then on top of it, you're going to leave with a lot more knowledge about what you're wondering about. It's just, it's a really welcoming community. I know when I started, I was worried probably a little different perspective, but I was really worried when I started hunting that people would think I was only hunting because of my dad. Um, Like I was trying to ride on his coattails and I was just trying to start hunting for only that reason. It's not because I actually wanted to, which was not the case. I really didn't plan to be on the show. I didn't plan to be, make it a career by any means. I just wanted to hunt with them. And the first time I went to one of the conventions after my first hunt aired on the show I was thinking people were going to kind of look at me weird and it was not like that. They were so happy I was out there. They were so happy to see a father daughter duo go out there and enjoy family and promote all the positive things that we try to promote on our TV show. And it was just really inspiring to see that welcome attitude, which I've tried to relate on to people now that I'm, I've been around for a little while. And when there's new girls coming up, I try to do the exact same thing to them.
4: Right.
1: right. Jim being seasoned as you are, how would you answer that question?
2: Uh, you yeah, know, I think Evie, Really hit it on the head. I, there's not much I can add to that, uh, except to reiterate that you know the people that are in the hunting community are, are all good people. That you know they're they're family oriented. They're again, I'll use the words honorable and and honest and you know I mean they're they're welcoming people, open arms, and 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 it's it's a nice community to to belong to, a, a nice group to belong to, a nice brotherhood. You know if you're, you're Using um, using that term, it, there it, it's nothing to be afraid of, and and uh, and like I say, for a lot of people right now, it may be an answer to that question that that so many people are struggling with nowadays. You know, what am I doing with my life? Well, you know, come and come try hunting. You know, meet some hunters and at one of these community groups, and and go hunting. You, you might just answer answer that question and take you on a course that'll suddenly give a enlightenment of, about why we're on this earth you know why why are we here you know we're, we're the you find you find that answer in the outdoors
1: Right, for sure and yeah, no doubt about great answers jay i, I want to get jim and eva let's get into thinking about one of your most memorable whitetail hunts together
3: Okay, oh, study this answer. answer.
1: <laughs> All right, we have,
3: no, a, we
0: have a winner.
3: Don't try to steal mine. So I'm going to say my answer first. Um, my favorite whitetail hunt, which is whitetails for our family, is a really, a really special place because we have a family ranch out in Saskatchewan. A little tiny house, on <laughs> um, sort of in the bunch in the middle of the field, and we go every single year. And every year, it's been a family occasion. So my mom will come out. My brother will try to come out if he can. And then my grandfather. My, my dad's from Saskatchewan so he would come out when he was still with us and then my mom's dad would come out it would just be a big family event and my absolute favorite whitetail hunt was one year we went out in the morning we'd been hunting for a few days at this point or I can't remember how I'm, many almost, days. I'm
1: gonna stop you there you let's let's roll back to what what year are we
2: going back to do you recall
3: um dad probably was it 2013 probably
2: you're asking me to think backwards. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> to me, to me, all the hunts, all the hunts were wonderful.
3: Yeah, probably 2000, maybe 12 or 13, somewhere in there. And okay. we were hunting whitetails. And in the morning, my dad and I had already been out for a while hunting for the week, probably previous. And in the morning, we finally a, a nice buck walked in, and I ended up shooting that buck. And it was a great, wonderful experience. Really fun. We kind of were very relieved. We'd worked hard for it. And then in the afternoon, my grandfather, Hal, came out to the ranch, and we brought him out hunting. And he ended up getting a nice, I mean, (laughs) he called it a soup buck, like good for making soup because it had lots of meat on it. And he got his buck, and that ended up being his last buck that he, or his last hunt he ever went on because he passed away the following year. And it was just one of those experiences. You can never redo it. You can never ask to do it any better than how we really had it all fall into place. And on top of that, we had it on film, which is a really, I absolutely love that episode. I still watch it all the time and it's going to be around forever. So that's my favorite memory of the three generations. That is awesome. cool.
0: That's cool that you can see the videotape. It's like, you know, moments you when I had with my dad growing up, we weren't videotaping hunting, but we'd have the, the eight millimeter tapes that we'd play back now and then no sound or anything like that but just capturing a moment on film with your your grandfather that's just priceless and to have it captured in such a, a, a well-done format that's even better
3: yeah we yeah, basically we're, have, we're of life, most of my life has been on video which if you can let go of everything else that's happened to us and our jobs and careers and anything that's been positive my absolute favorite thing I would walk away with is the videotapes and the DVDs of all of our grandparents and me and my brother and my parents and just the memories. You really could never replace that. Right.
0: So, Jim, you have been on a bunch of whitetail hunts yourself. I've also noticed that you've gone on some kind of crazy hunts lately in the Middle East. One of my favorite pictures is you sitting in a, almost like a jeep with a, a machine gun surrounded by guards just to get you to the, the hunting location safely. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, that would have been in Pakistan on the uh, Togor Mountains, right on the well, actually, right on the border with Afghanistan. A pretty rough area, tribal area.
0: Yeah, it's, is that one of your most memorable hunts, or is there a, a, a whitetail hunt that tops that?
2: Well, I, I mean. Every, every hunt is, is memorable. I mean, I, uh, you know, every single hunt has, has redeeming features that, that you know, I'll, I'll take the memories to my grave. So every hunt is memorable. But, you know, for me, just like Evie said, the the most important hunts for me are, are not, you know, that I went out and shot a world record this, or got a monster that, or went to some crazy place. They're they're the the hunts where I spent time in the wildlands with, my family members, and that, mm-hmm. as a parent, there's just nothing better than spending time with your, your your own children, in 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 the field hunting, and and you know with their spouses now, I and mean, that, that that those those memories are are you know priceless. You can't even to put a number or to even talk about it, that it could have a value. It's just beyond value. It's inestimable. It's uh, it's forever. And that, those yeah. those are those are my most memorable hunts for sure. And and whitetail because that's what we grew up hunting in, in Saskatchewan in Canada here in North America. You know, so so there's so many more memories from whitetail hunts than any other any other hunts. Anybody can hunt whitetails. Yeah.
0: Great answer. I love that answer. All right, so we're at the, uh, the the ten rapid fire question part of the show. And I didn't prep you for this. Are you guys ready?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course.
0: All right. So we'll start with Jim, um, and then we'll we'll skip over to eva for the same question he'll just go down the list and they're not too hard you'll know them off the top of the head but we're gonna what's that
3: i get some warning on them this is perfect
0: yes all right (laughs) but then we'll we'll flip flop and i'll have eva answer the the next question first so so jim can think about his answer all right there are a bunch of hunting tips out there you've you've encountered a bunch what's your number one hunting tip of all time
2: uh don't forget your binos Without binos, you're, you're, we're, we're blind out in the field. And I don't care if you're hunting inside a forest. Binos are, are vital.
4: Huge.
0: Okay. Eva?
3: Right. Um. I was going to say make sure you have the right gear. So I guess that would include binos, but more so make sure you have the right boots for the type of hunting you're on or the right amount of layers for the type of weather because a hunt can get ruined real fast if your feet are soaking or if you're too cold and you have no way to warm up or get dry.
0: We all have these things we bring into the woods with with us. They're good luck charms, typically, of some sort. They they may or may not enhance your hunt, but you feel like they do, and it drives you crazy if you don't have it within your pack when you're sitting in the blind or in the stand or whatever. What's that one thing for you?
3: Uh, I really don't think I have anything that's a good luck charm I go crazy when I don't have myself want to take photos, if that counts, but it's, yeah, not really, that counts. it's not a good luck charm. It's just I feel like I don't want to miss anything, and I want to make sure a big part of what I do is social media, and I like to share everything with people so they feel like if they can't maybe get out and do what I'm doing, they at least can see what it's like and experience it, so that's a big part of it for me.
0: Okay. Yeah, sometimes it's a good luck charm. Sometimes it's just some something that you have to have with you. Right, Jim, what about you?
2: Uh, you know, I... I- fight being superstitious because it would be so easy to go down that that road and end up with a hundred stupid little things that you do like like and what I find it is uh putting on my gators I, I, I get in the habit of putting my right gator on first and then it starts to become uh, it, it starts to become where I question whether I'm doing it right if I'm not putting my right one on first and I, it, I'll purposely then put my left one on just to fight against going down that that road of superstition so I, I don't there's nothing that I have with me or take with me that is a uh, charm that's, you know, I, I, and I fight I fight the superstitions.
0: Okay. All right. Good answer. All right. W- Jim, what's your biggest pet peeve?
2: Uh, I, I think it would be that, well, I mean, number one, that we're misunderstood by the non-hunting public. And, and I, you know, so the peeve part of it is that, that you know, A, the, the press has uh, the popular press has, has painted us as these louts with no higher sensibilities? So, and the fact that we've let it happen, you know. So that that's, I'd say that's my my biggest peeve. And, and maybe third is that hunters fight among themselves. On I mean, you know, baiting shouldn't be allowed. Dogs shouldn't be allowed. You know, only traditional bows should be allowed. No crossbows. No airbows. Right. No, you know, I, I hate that we fight among ourselves. We we need to be one voice to otherwise we are just divided and conquered.
0: Right. The, the high fence thing, that, that's part of that old... Another one, uh, yeah, another. exactly. All right. Eva, how about you? What's your biggest pet peeve?
3: I thought he was going to not say it, but then he threw it in right at the end. Mine's 100%. The fact, if an anti-hunter comes and says mean things, I don't really care that much, but when a hunter says things to another hunter or says a thing to me about how I'm hunting or how I shouldn't be hunting or should be hunting, it drives me crazy because I, they just need to realize that we're all on the same team. It doesn't matter what our methods are as long as they're legal. And if mine's different than someone else's, I'm not going to bash that hunter. And I, I think people really need to realize that because it's up to us to join one united front and not make it easier target for the anti-hunters to come and get at us. So that would be my number one pet peeve that I have.
0: Eva, how old are you today? 28. You're 28. What would you tell the 15-year-old Eva Shockey, knowing what you know now? Uh <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I would tell yes. the 15-year-old daughter of Jim to listen a little more to my parents yeah. and to maybe pay more attention to the hunting stories and information that he shared because I started at 20 and was kind of a blank slate. But if I would have started a little earlier, I would have had <laughs> a lot more knowledge going into my hunts. Um And I just, I know that a big reason why I didn't hunt was because I was insecure with being a female who hunted, because at the time, it wasn't that long ago, but there really were not a lot of girls out there that did it, and the ones that did, I didn't really have access to them, because it was before social media, and we lived in Canada, so we didn't have outdoor channel, and I would tell myself that just because you're a girl and you like hunting, there's nothing wrong with that, and you don't have to apologize for that, you don't have to change to go out in the woods, you can still be the same Eva in the woods and out of the woods, and not have to change and just be... Be
0: happy that you love the
3: outdoors. Wow, that was deep. Thanks, guys. Nice. <laughs> I was making sure my dad can't top it.
0: All right, All right Jim. How old are you today, Jim?
2: I'm 50 Okay. He's
0: old.
3: I'm
0: right.
2: sorry. Did, did that Did that break up?
0: It, it did. Uh, it was, was a little, say, little broken there. I'm, I'm not sure why. Eight. Yeah, it must be Skype. Um,
2: yeah, I'm, I'm 58, 58.
0: 58. All right, so what would you tell the 25-year-old Jim Shockey, knowing what you know today?
2: Um, hang in there for just a few more months. You're going to meet Louise and your life will turn around and you'll be living happily ever after. (laughs) Nice. Oh, and, and, uh, try learning a few dance steps before you go to the dance class next time.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. And would you wear the the tight white shorts again?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Like I say, advertising.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jim, you meet a, you meet a stranger at a hunting convention in the hotel lobby strike up a conversation, and they ask you what you do for a living, what do you tell them?
2: Uh, I say I do a lot of different things. Uh, and I, number one is I'm a hunter and travel all over the world and, and do television shows about that.
0: Okay. Eva, what would you say?
3: I usually just say that my family is in the outdoor industry, and I've grown up with it, and that's usually how I talk to people. And I, I, I prefer not to really say what we do in detail just because I enjoy talking to people without them thinking it's a tv show and it's maybe you need to change the conversation or angle a certain a certain way i really just like talking like any other hunter because that's ultimately that's who we are we hunt the same as anyone else hunts we just happen to have tv cameras sometimes or all the time following all the time, us right. on, on the hunts yeah all right.
0: I, eva what did you have for breakfast this morning
3: um i had a green smoothie with mountain ops protein in it
0: mm, interesting sounds good yes. jim what did you have for breakfast
2: I had a, uh, a green smoothie with, uh, mountain ops protein in it. <laughs> Did you
3: actually? Oh, yeah, cause mom uses it too. <laughs> that's funny. I Yeah, no,
2: that's the, I have the, my, we, my wife calls it the green juice and, uh, yeah, that, that's what she feeds me. That's what I, that's what I drink. I don't know if it feeds me or drinks me. I don't know, but that's, that's what uh, we have in the morning and, uh, some ginger, ginger and lemon sort of cold tea thing and then, and then a cup of decaf, cafe latte coffee with, with almond milk, not with real milk. So wow. there's my breakfast. All right.
0: All right. Very interesting. Uh, all right, Jim, you get your own billboard blank slate. It's white. You can put anything that you want on it. What does it say?
2: Boy, that that's, you know, I, I mean, I guess it depends on, uh, on where the billboard is. If it's, if it's in a hunting community, then, uh, you know, uh, I'm a hunter and proud of it. And if it's downtown New York city, then I, I'd, uh, I would probably put a. I've got a new book coming out. Why doesn't everybody buy it? <laughs> right. you know, so, so, <laughs> buy so, it, it, it depends. I, you know, I think you would waste the billboard if you you know put something. I'm a hunter and proud of it in downtown New York City. You know, let's use it for for something that generates revenues and and use the revenues for for educating the public. Uh, you know, somewhere outside of New York City afterwards. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's uh, that's not an easy question to answer.
0: That's a good good answer though. I like that. All right, Eva, what would you put on your billboard?
3: Um, assuming it's sort of more around hunting and not New York City, more just in a normal location, I would say the tagline that I've used for a few years is never apologize for being a hunter, and we talked about that before, but I put that on shirts a few years ago because I say it all the time, and I've said it in interviews, and it- these shirts kind of just went viral and the saying went viral and now people hashtag it all the time. And it's a really cool thing because it kind of makes you inspired and it makes you positive and realize you don't have to apologize for hunting, no matter who's who doesn't think it's okay or who doesn't think it's a good thing to do.
0: All right. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why? I was going interested-
3: to uh, <laughs> oh. um, just say family right away. Success to me means having family or people that you consider family close in your life. Um, a successful person? I would say my dad, which sounds kind of cheesy, but just because he does, <laughs> he's created a life for himself and he does exactly what he loves and it's not about money because clearly he's not someone that has more money than other people that I could list for that question, but he's just someone that does every single day what he's passionate about and what he loves and it's... Um, it's just something that's really inspiring and I would love to be in that similar position when I'm way older, when I turn 58.
0: Very good. How about you, Jim?
2: Um, I'd probably pick me too. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not cheesy. (laughs) No, for totally different reasons, because, uh, somehow I've managed to, uh, stay so happily married and head over heels in love with, uh, my wife, Louise. I mean, I've had no problem doing it, but, uh, I've somehow managed to keep her. And to me, that's, it sort of harkens back to what Evie said about uh, family. You know, it's it's family is the most important of all. That that's a success when you have a a family around you and you've created a family and passed on traditions and knowledge. So, so for me, you know, I would I would have said Louise, but then I thought, oh no, because she's kind of ended up being married to me for 31 years. So that, <laughs> that's not very successful. But uh, for me to keep her, you know, uh, yeah, I'd say. I'd pick me for that reason.
0: Gotcha. All right. Jim, what's a day in the life look like for you?
2: Uh, you know, I I travel 305 days a year roughly, mm-hmm. you know, give or take, you know, five or 10 days. So, so most days I'm waking up in some foreign country in some hard, cold, foreign bed, eating some strange foreign food, listening to people speak a foreign language so you know but then but then it all comes together when when we step out into the wildlands and and get hunting because that that's universal or at least worldwide nothing changes hunters are hunters doesn't matter where they're from whether it's pakistan afghanistan iran you know west africa or South America, North America, South Pacific. They're, they're hunters are hunters, and and uh, so then it then it becomes a, a commonality that, that that we all can relate to. So that my normal day, I normally I'd be waking up somewhere that uh, is far away from home.
0: Wow, that's uh, that's incredible. But and it's amazing. You, the hunter is the hunter. And you've traveled all over the world, but it always comes back to that that's crazy yep. it
2: nice. doesn't matter what language doesn't matter religion doesn't matter culture or country uh whatever your beliefs are hunters or hunters and 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 uh, you know tribal warlord or or you know a, a, a pygmy hunter in the, the the forests of Congo it we're, you know we understand each other we don't even have to speak the same language gotcha all
0: right Eva what's a day in the life look like
3: uh, my my life is pretty split between a few different lives I guess I kind of consider I mean with my husband Tim he's a hockey player so when I'm at home I'm in the hockey world and I go to the hockey rink and I support him and I'm one of the hockey wives and they get to do all the kind of cool exciting stuff as the hockey players and the wives are kind of there clapping and cheering and being there for them and then I go into my other life which is traveling whether it's hunting trips physically up up in the mountains somewhere afar or if it's just work trips, like I'll host events and I'll go speak at banquets and I'll go to seminars and just involving hunting. And I like it that way because it's not one or the other. I get to, it's a very nice balance because when I get sick of one thing, I get to go do the other. And then by the time I miss the the first thing, I go back and do it again. And it it kind of balances out my life pretty well.
0: Gotcha. I'm going to hold the last question because it was about what's a deer hunting day in the life. But I think we answered that because you're usually are hunting in some way, shape or form. (laughs) So we'll, we'll skip the question number 10. I can't thank you enough for joining us on the show, guys. It's been just a tremendous experience and an honor getting to know both of you a little bit better for the last hour and let me go a little deeper than than what uh, some people normally would. And I feel like I know you better in some way.
3: Yeah, thanks for having well, us. You didn't yeah, even It's so
0: our it. pleasure. I didn't stop you.
3: Not well. Maybe a couple of questions. No, Some of the complimentary uh, questions I had to go into that I was not happy about, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, very good. Dusty, do you have any qu- final questions for these guys?
1: No, I don't. They uh, answered everything real thoroughly, and, and thanks again for joining us on the Big Buck Registry. Thanks for
3: having All us. Right. Appreciate it. Yeah,
2: thank you very
1: much. The two of them cracked me up. I'm still laughing, Jay. It's just amazing that uh, you would never expect that out of them. Yeah. And, and, and they cut up and they have a good time. And, and you know, uh, Jim's hard on her and, and, and Eva's hard on Jim. And it, It's pretty amazing the bond that they have and the, the, the capability to to kind of not necessarily clown around, but to kind of cut up a little bit and enjoy yeah. their time together and, you know, kind of give each other a little heck about what they got going on or what they do or how they hunt you know, obviously, Jim was a huge inspiration on Eva, and, and educating her in the woods and, and showing her the ropes of the woods. And
0: it shows that uh, there's a bond there like no other. It really is. I could see myself having a relationship with my daughter as she gets older in in that way, and just yeah, you, know, you kind of rub each other into you know little little jab, little poke, little ribbon. You know, that's just the way it is. And I I, I have that kind of relationship with my daughter now, so I would imagine. Somewhere down the road, we'll be very much the same way that those two are. This yeah, for sure. Really funny. Really good stuff. Well, thank. I can't thank them enough for joining us as a tandem duo on the Big Buck Podcast, because I I don't think it's been done before on any other podcast. We just like doing that type of stuff first here on our show. So that was really cool. Uh, Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week this week? We do have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week, Jade. The Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use Firearms bows, use bows, located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods.
1: Tip of the week is get them trail cameras out there and get them rolling. The, uh, the bucks are starting to show a little bit of antler growth. You know, I, I just happened to run into a buck on the side of the road the other night. And uh, I've seen about an inch and a half, two inches of velvet coming out of the skull. And, and they're starting to, to develop a little bit of antler. And, and you know, not, not a whole lot, but uh, I'm sure in uh, many states that uh, deer are starting to produce antlers. And, uh, you know, I'm going to recommend a, a USA Trail Camera to get out there in the woods and capture them deer as they grow
0: this new antler growth for 2016, 2017 season. Yeah, I love that idea because, you know, you can start monitoring your deer herd and watching the calculated, documented, day-by-day growth with a really quality camera. You can really start to hone in on those. And it's kind of, it's it's just awesome watching the timeline.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely really cool, Jay. The, the The whole thing with me is, is that if you can notice them within three inches of antler growth, if you can pick out which bucket it is. Uh, comparison to to the years prior, or you know, if you're fortunate enough to have the cameras from the year, the camera pictures from the years prior, you can you can almost see exactly what bucks have made it through and and that are making that new growth. And every year, a, a deer will put on inches, you know. And if you can substitute that with a little bit of mineral and some feed, boy, it helps out, no doubt about it. And and uh, it's a definitely a time of year that you can enjoy it and and see how your herd is, what your buck. Uh, what your buck numbers are and
0: what's happening in the woods. <laughs> That's a great idea. Absolutely love it, man. Well, it's been a great show. I want to say thank you to Jim Morse over at Morse's Sporting Goods for being a sponsor, and I want to say thank you to Jim Snow over at the Euro Hanger for being a sponsor on the show. It's just been uh, it's been a great ride, and you know, without those guys, we the show really doesn't exist in the, the format that it does. So can't can't thank him enough. Uh, dusty where can we find you when we're not hanging out here on the mic
1: hey, shoot me an email dusty at com. you can look me up on facebook uh chubby tines outdoors and if uh, you want to get a little bit into my personal life you can uh, hit me up on instagram at chasing antler jay where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic
0: like you, uh, the email is the best, J at bigbuckregistry.com. Uh, you can always find us on Facebook, and that's facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. If you'd like to have your buck featured on the big Facebook page in front of, I don't know where we're at now, 229,000 or so followers, uh, all diehard deer hunting fans, and you like to show off some of the successes you had in the woods over the last year or two years or whenever. Send it to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash buck, or go there and you'll see all the instructions uh, that you need in order to get your buck featured on the Big Buck Registry Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram, which is bigbuckregistry.com forward slash Instagram and on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash Registry. And you can always give us a call at 724-613-2825 or leave us a text and uh, send us a text at that number. And we'll, uh, we'll get that. And if you want to give us some feedback, let us know what you like, don't like, if there's some suggestions that you'd like us to pursue or some guests that you'd like us to go get. All that is right there at your fingertips And because we like to communicate with our, our listeners and our fan base. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, you're it. So, Dusty, it has been a great show. Thanks for joining us uh, once again and being the co-host and hanging out and talking deer hunt. Yeah, we're going to be talking some turkey hunting this weekend, Jay. Yeah, that, that is true. Well, we're going to gobble, gobble. We're going to be talking about it from the day you land to the day that we drop you back off at the airport, and probably well beyond that for, for many years to come. Yeah, no doubt about it. My name is Jay Scott. And I'm Dusty Fellow. This is the Big Buck Registry's deer hunting podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait.